It's the Friday episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Gotta be honest, though, we're recording it at the end of the day Thursday because of a conflict, and we really would rather be outside. What a day for weather. We'll be talking about it. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, and let's go. Remember those two guys who were convicted of using robocalls in specific Cleveland neighborhoods to try and suppress the vote? Their emails about that scheme have been released. Layla, what do they show? Well, so the, for the backstory, these guys, Jack Berkman and Jacob Wool, have, they pled guilty to telecommunications fraud, which is a fifth degree felony, and they agreed to pay a $2,500 fine. They were sentenced back in November to two years of probation. The judge also ordered them to spend 500 hours with a nonprofit organization registering voters in low-income neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. Thought that was a great and creative sentence. And uh, the FCC in August of 2021 proposed a $5.1 million fine against them and their lobbying firm, Berkman and Associates, for calling cell phones without the owner's consent. So they specifically sought to suppress black voter turnout in the 2020 election. And the robocall in question went out on August 26 of 2020. It falsely claimed that people who voted by mail risked giving their personal information to the government, which would use it to check for outstanding debts and arrest warrants or to implement a forced vaccination program. And the message was read by a person who said her name was Tamika Taylor, which authorities believed was supposed to confuse recipients into thinking that it was Tamika Palmer, who's the mother of Brianna Taylor, the woman who was killed by police in Louisville. The reader of this message also said she was from the Civil Rights Project 1599. The call went to 8,100 phones in Cleveland and East Cleveland, and nearly half of them answered the call. And um, so in this batch of emails that that um, were released, these guys, uh, you know, investigators discovered that they, they chose not to scrub from the list the names of folks on the do not call list. And also they found uh, in the emails an audio file of the robocall itself. So just really a trove of evidence against them. They referred to it as the black robo in their emails. And the emails really clearly laid out that they they did um, ex- they did indeed intend to target zip codes that were predominantly black communities. And um, you know, in one email they said, we should send it to black neighborhoods in Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, Charlotte, Richmond, Atlanta, and Cleveland. I mean, pretty clear. It doesn't get more clear than that. And then five hours later, they had narrowed that field down to Cleveland, Philadelphia, Minneapolis, Chicago, and New York City. So these emails also show that the men wanted the calls to receive press coverage, and they agreed to lie to reporters about their involvement. Uh, I thought it was funny. There was one that said, uh, Wool wrote this one that said, Robo getting quite a bit of play on Twitter. I think they will have to write. <laughs> so they were what? looking forward to getting the the media coverage that would come from this terrible deed. Why would you want media coverage if your goal is to suppress the vote? Because wouldn't media coverage just have the opposite effect? It would just make people angry and possibly spur them to vote? Well, I don't know. I don't know why you would want media. I mean, I guess it, it's... Uh, you know, gets it spreads the message even further. And there are people who do tend to believe disinformation. I don't know. Oh, you know, I, 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 this is just so sinister. I mean, I, 
Republicans keep talking about how they've got to appeal to minority communities because of the changing demographics of America. Why would anybody in any minority community want to embrace the Republicans when this is what happens? It's yeah. like, this is as bad as it gets. Yep. Yeah, this was this was ugly. I mean, the uh, and and they very neatly tied up the the package of evidence for the investigators in these emails that were released. Yeah, it, it is really one of the most cynical acts done in the recent election cycles in, in our own in our own country. This isn't Russians. This isn't weirdness with Facebook. This is a couple of guys that made a specific attempt to get black voters to stay home to change the course of the election. Amazing. The the emails are just stunning. Check out the story. It's on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. We know that the bribery scheme involving HB6 involved $60 million, but now we know what the people accused of creating the corruption scheme personally pocketed for their roles. What did we learn from testimony Thursday, Lisa? Yeah, FBI agent Blaine Wetzel Wetzel spent day number eight on the stand Thursday, and he had a list of the names and amounts of those who enriched themselves as part of the HB6 scandal. Um, He also showed how Larry Householder used the Generation Now Dark Money nonprofit to pay his bills. So uh, names and numbers. Larry Householder, uh, Wetzel testified, got $514,000. Matt Borges, uh, his co-defendant, got $366,000. And then uh, lobbyist Jeff Longstreth and Juan Cespedes, who have pled guilty and will be testifying in coming weeks for the prosecution. Uh, Longstreth got $2.53 million and Juan Cespedes got at least $650,000, but that's not including his company retainer, and there's really no specific amount there. And also Neil Clark, the deceased lobbyist. He got $365,000 through Generation Now and a group called Fieldworks. It's a petition company that went out to block attempts to repeal House Bill 6. Now, Matt Borges spent his amount at testimony shows. Uh, he spent his money on credit card and hotel bills and $3,200 in Ohio State University tickets. Um, householder, apparently, uh, you know, he not only paid a very, very large legal bill, but he also paid his credit card bills and renovations on his Florida home. But testimony seems to indicate that Householder used long stress to take care of his Florida home and, you know, get the pool cleaned and fix the AC and other maintenance. What's interesting, What's interesting about this is all through this corruption trial, we've talked about it. It's power. It's it's the first energy. It's the utility controlling the seats of power and doing all these shenanigans. But at heart, it's pure greed. This is how much money do I get personally to thwart the will of the voters and what's best for the people I'm supposed to represent. It's just pure selfishness and greed that drives these guys. It'll be interesting. And, and I guess that the, uh, the prosecutors are finished with uh, FBI agent Wetzel. So I guess it's, uh, you know, householders and Borges attorneys turn next week to, to uh, cross-examine him. Yeah, that will be interesting. They'll try and cross him up. The uh, <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how they do it. The Borges money was, I don't think that's been reported before. You know, he's been out there telling everybody, oh, I'm just a, a pawn in this thing. I didn't do anything wrong. He made a nice chunk of change. Was it 366000 right? Yes, exactly. 
Yeah, that's a lot of cash for, for doing the, the bidding here. Good stuff. It's today in Ohio. Let's stick with the corruption trial. Remember those over-the-top red China ads in the first Energy HB6 case? They've come up in the corruption trial. Laura, did we learn much? Well, Blaine, uh, our favorite FBI special agent, Blaine Wetzel, on the penultimate day of his testimony, went through how this worked and the fact that Larry Householder personally approved of the language on these ads. And I don't know if you can forget them, right? There was two prongs. There was the ad on TV, and then there were the flyers that were mailed to people's homes. So $2 million spent on TV and radio ads. This was this very Cold War, Red Dawn vibe. It started in late August of that year. And this was not a campaign to get anything approved. This was a campaign to stop the repeal referendum. Remember, they did not want people to sign the petition. That is how aggressive this campaign was. They got it passed, and then they were super forceful in, in stopping even you know, petitioners from going around to ask people if they would repeal House Bill 6, which, you know, a $1.3 billion nuclear bailout, which costs Ohioans a whole lot of money. And then there was the scary, glossy literature sent to mailboxes across the state that falsely equated signing the petition with providing personal information to the communist Chinese government. So just trying to scare the heck out of everyone. When I was a kid, I read Mad Magazine, and I remember those postcards being like the satire you'd get in, in Mad Magazine. It was just so over-the-top stupid, uh, and you wondered, is anybody reading this and buying it? Is anybody looking at that postcard, which is so over-the-top, and thinking, oh my God, this is a communist plot to get my private information and steal my identity? Maybe someone believed it because they <laughs> never got the signatures they needed to get that on the ballot. And there was this really small kernel of truth in that the Chinese government claims like a natural gas power plant developer associated with the repeal campaign. Because remember, there were a whole lot of people that didn't like this for a lot of reasons. They had accepted loans backed by the Chinese government. But the same bank had previously invested in First Energy. Yeah, it, it, it was a it was a dastardly campaign. I'm not sure the postcards did it. It might have been the people that they sent out to actually physically interfere with the petition gatherers. That got so bad. I mean, there was physical altercation in one right. spot that the attorney general, who was a friend of First Energy, even spoke up and said, you better cut that out or I'm going to prosecute you. And you almost wondered when these ads were going on, if they were going to drive people to go find a petition to sign because they were so over the top. But I guess not. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley announced racketeering charges in a prostitution scheme in two counties Thursday. What's this case about, Layla? I think it's a little murky right now, but 11 people were indicted Thursday for, according to prosecutors, running prostitution rackets out of massage parlors in Northeast Ohio. The locations are uh, New High Spa in Strongsville, Helen Foot Spa in Middleburg Heights, Flexology Spa in Willowick, and Green Spa in Mentor. And these 11 defendants face charges of racketeering and conspiracy and money laundering, promoting prostitution and possession of criminal tools. And they're all charged with at least one count each of engaging in a pattern of corrupt activity, conspiracy, promoting prostitution and possessing criminal tools. Five of them are charged with multiple counts, each of money laundering and promoting prostitution. 
The indictment says the operation conspired to create and run a prostitution ring, and it used these massage parlors as a front to launder the proceeds of the operation, which ran from June of 2020 to about mid-August of 2022. And that's when investigators raided these businesses. And so all of the parties involved were really proud of this announcement in, in their joint press release. You know, Prosecutor Michael Malley said, Human trafficking has no borders, and through the collaboration, this enterprise was brought to an end. And um, you know, Attorney General Davio said it's finally time they pull back the curtain on these so-called massage parlors and expose the people invo- exploiting the victims and laundering the money. I just don't think we know enough about the victims in this case yet. Were they consenting sex workers, or were they victims of trafficking? If it's the latter, then I'm on the side of law enforcement here. They did the right thing. I hope the victims get the resources they need to move on with their lives. No? Is human trafficking uh, a statutory offense? Like, if you do it, can you be charged with the crime of human trafficking? You mean you if know? you're trafficking others? Yeah. I believe. They're saying, though, victims of trafficking were were indicted in this right. case. Uh, but there's nobody that's actually charged with trafficking. That's They're right. And I, think that's, that's, I think that's the confusing part is why, why were there no trafficking charges brought? And why weren't there details offered? If this is trafficking, how were they doing the trafficking? Where were they getting their victims? How were they coercing them? Yeah. I mean, this is, if you read it, it reads like there were some massage parlors that were selling sex for money but but where is the trafficking there it's it's lacking in this description yeah i agree with you Mm -hmm. all right we'll look for more information you're listening to today in ohio could an old elementary school in cleveland add some cachet to the gordon square neighborhood lisa the gordon square neighborhood has had a 20-year renaissance is there more coming They're certainly hoping so, but I think they're looking for more affordable housing over there. So uh, the city of Cleveland issued a request for a proposal for that 2.2 acre site of the Watterson Lake Elementary School, which is on West 74th Street. The school was closed in 2019. So the uh, Cleveland Metropolitan School District will demolish the school building and the parking lot and then give the land to the city of Cleveland. Councilwoman Jenny Spencer says she talked to Gordon Square residents who want public access with playground and or green space and no more luxury housing. They said that they need housing for all income levels. And Northwest Neighborhood CDC uh, spokesman Adam Stadler says he concurs. He says the popularity of Gordon Square has led to unintended skyrocketing home prices and rents. And he said this is a once in a lifetime chance to diversify housing in the area. The submission deadline for these proposals is May 31st, but there's no current timeline for what happens after that. What's interesting in a lot of these neighborhoods that have had somewhat of a turnaround is they there's not a lot of land. And so to make room for additional development, to make room for more people to live or work there, you've got to come up with creative solutions. This school seems like a pretty good solution. Yeah, and they've allowed the public to have input. So, um, and it'll be interesting to see what proposals, you know, because I can't imagine how much affordable housing you're going to cram on 2.2 acres unless it's multifamily, but I would think they wouldn't want that. So it'll be interesting to see what proposals come forward. Okay. It's today in Ohio. There's no way we can avoid talking about this. We broke another record for high temperatures Thursday. We seem to do that a lot in recent years. But this is February 9th, and the temperature seems extraordinary. Laura, what was it, and how extraordinary is it? 
66 degrees high on Thursday. I got to say, I did not think we were going to get here, especially when I ran Thursday morning. And I was like, it is freezing outside. I told my daughter, don't wear shorts to school. But she was like, mom, I'm wearing shorts to school. I'm going out at recess. So you have likely never experienced a warmer day in Cleveland this early in February. We're talking about an 85-year-old record. Um, The previous record, well, 85-year-old it's been 85 years since it's been this warm. I'm sorry. That was confusing. But the previous record for February 9th was 63 degrees. 2001 set it again, same and tied it in 2016. So two days nearly broke 70 degrees back in 1937. It was 69. And in 1900, it was 67. Those are back when we recorded the temperature downtown Cleveland, not at the airport. So those aren't in exactly the same location. What's amazing, we've been talking about this, is this time last year, we all had about a foot and a half of snow in our backyard and we're having to shovel paths for our dogs. I love that you say we've been talking about this. You keep saying it. (laughs) Well, my dog was wearing a collar post surgery, walking in the snow, digging it up. So it was it would have been so much easier to have this weather. I just when you walked outside Thursday afternoon, it, it was it was like you were deep into spring. I mean, there's a nice breeze. The sun was out and the the temperature just couldn't have been more ideal. Right. Yeah. Skier, it Laura? won't last. By the time people are listening to this, there'll probably be a, a, you know, a fond memory of how nice it was Thursday afternoon because it's supposed to be about, you know, 40 on Friday. But these high oh. temperatures were due to the warm front coming in with a low pressure system. That's what caused the big gusts of wind and the rain in the morning. So it's kind of collided and this is very short lived. So you have to, I mean, whenever you get a warm day in February, you need to appreciate it. Right. But you look across the next week and it's, it's unseasonable Mm -hmm. every day. I mean, forties, I think there's a 50. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything looking like February weather in the forecast for a week. And so Zachary Smith was looking at this, ahead. And so we had a story Thursday morning that looked how common this was. And so he he said a, a, a standard of the first 10 days of February as early February and said we've begun seeing 60 degree days with some relative frequent, frequency looking back over a half century. So this is the seventh 60 degree plus day in early February in the last seven years. In the 43 years before that, there were only two other such days. So, I mean climate change, right? Well, I hope you got outside and enjoyed some of it. It's today in Ohio. Okay, we're in Cleveland. We have to talk about this one. LeBron James, number one NBA scorer of all time. Layla, how much of that is about Cleveland? Wow. So apparently 60.2% of his total record number of points were scored during his time in Cleveland. I mean, earlier this week, he became the the NBA's all-time scoring leader. He broke Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's scoring record of 38,387 points during a game against the, the Oklahoma City Thunder. He's now scored 38,390 points. And, you know, like I said, 60.2% uh, during his years as a Cav. And, um, you know, the Lakers made a huge deal about this. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar raised a basketball and handed it to James. But, uh, you know, Abdul-Jabbar, he scored 63% of his record number of points as a Laker, and the rest was with the Milwaukee Bucks. James has now scored 19.2% of his current uh, number of points as a Laker. But apparently, James's 23,119 points scored as a Cavalier 
would rank 34th on its own in NBA history. That's Mm -hmm. pretty astounding. And that's just behind Elgin Baylor and just ahead of Clyde Drexler, both of whom are Hall of Famers and members of the NBA's top 75 players for the 75th anniversary of the league. Although, let me also add that LeBron is on that list of top players as well. And if he retired today, I'm sure he would get into the Hall of Fame at its for his first minute of eligibility. So, <laughs> but I'm not a fan or anything, right? <laughs> well, it's what we all remember when he was in high school and. People were predicting that he was the coming sensation. And often those kind of predictions don't work out. He's the rare guy that exceeds the expectations. Mm -hmm. To be the all-time leading NBA scorer, this kid from Akron, it boggles the mind, man. It's it's one of the, the biggest achievements. People thought no one would ever break that record. They thought that that was the one that was there forever. I, I, you've read Kareem Abdul-Jabbar certainly thought so, and here it is. And he's got more time. He's still top in the league. What is he, seventh in, in scoring this year, in his 20th year? I know, and I know it's, a, it's the, the continual debate about how he stacks up with other legends in the game, but LeBron is my number one. I mean, I think I read it somewhere recently that he has played – a Hall of Fame-worthy career on both sides of 30. And I thought that's just so Plus, astute. he's like this stand-up guy, right? It's not like there's an asterisk here that you're like, and he was kind of a per- personally a jerk. That's what like, I love most about him. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a great guy in Northeast Ohio, uh, helps the community. He's got his kids. Well, right, he's, he's still married to his high school sweetheart. I just... I don't think you can laud him enough for what he's been able to do in his career and maintain the being a stand-up guy who's you know really pushes for what he believes in. I think there should have been some sort of Cavs presence on the floor during the celebration. Maybe sixty percent of his jersey should have been maroon. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have any former Cavs players there? Or, I mean, uh, it, it was an all Laker. Yeah, thing, they weren't but... sure when it was going to happen. They did. They thought it right. might take another day. But they, but yeah. they had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar there. Oh yeah, he was going to be there, and he 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 was very gracious. Passed the torch, you know, put the basketball over his head, handed it to him. It's a mm-hmm. big moment, and he's not a, a Cavalier, but but he's Cleveland's. It's like I think, I think Super- we'll always claim him as a Cav, don't you think? Right. Well, look, there's a Super Bowl. It doesn't involve the Browns, but we got two key local guys in it, and you you celebrate that. We'll always celebrate LeBron. It'll be interesting to see when he's finished. Does he return? Because if he wants to be, he could be, you know, governor. He can run for me. He can do anything he wants. We all we all appreciate what he's done for Northeast Ohio. Congratulations, LeBron. It's Today in Ohio. East Cleveland was in the news again for government dysfunction. What a shock. It never seems to stop. It's another oddball story. Lisa, what happened? Yeah, and it's like a blooming onion. It's just got so many layers. But East Cleveland Council President Corian Stevenson is under investigation for possible records tampering, which is a third-degree felony, and disrupting public service, a misdemeanor. So Stevenson was caught on the City Hall security cameras back on December 29th, unplugging the computer of the clerk of council, Tracy Udrija Peters. Udrija Peters was working from home. Her laptop was connected through the office computer to the secure server. And she said she was working on agendas for the January 3rd council meeting. Um, 
Adrija Peters also said, and she gave Cleveland.com and Plain Dealer a copy of a letter that was left at her door that was dated December 29th and signed only by Corian Stevenson as president, although she was not officially president until a few days later. Uh, she said that council was going in a different direction, and she set a date for Adrija Peters to come and return her city property, and Adrija Peters has hired an attorney. She says it's retaliation against her and city law director Willa Hemmons for accepting and certifying petitions for a recall of Stevenson, Councilwoman Juanita Gowdy, and Councilwoman uh, Patricia Blakowiak. So, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. But Stevenson did send an email to us. She said she fired Udrija Peters days before the incident. She said she shouldn't have had access. And this sounds a little bit like a veiled threat, but she says, quote, employees should think through their actions after termination because their missteps could result in prosecution. No, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a strange one. I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess that could be it, right? It's the security of the, the data. And if she didn't believe the person should have access to it, unplugging the computer blocks it, but it's a, it's a full scale investigation now. So Clearly, somebody thinks something wrong happened here. And apparently, the council meetings in East Cleveland have devolved into shouting matches, uh, per particularly over filling a vacant seat of a of a recalled member, Ernest Smith, who was recalled last October. And the you know they've asked the Eighth Appeals Court to step in, but the Appeals Court said mm, no thanks, and they dismissed it for lack of evidence. So a lot of unrest. Yeah, well, I don't think anybody wants to step into this who doesn't have to. I'm not surprised the court turned it down. You're listening to Today in Ohio, just in time for Valentine's Day, news about Mally's Chocolates, the Cleveland institution. It's looking to grow. Laura, how does it plan to do that? It has sold off part of the company in order to grow. So the Chicago-based Promise Holdings LLC and a group of Cleveland investors bought this minority interest in the company. Mally's has been family owned since it was bought, first opened in 1935. It's gone through three generations. Apparently, it was originally a deli as well, but they became really well known for their chocolate. So that's where they stayed. So this sale is going to give the company capital to expand and get expertise from Promise Holdings. But they're not leaving Cleveland. The pink building on Brook Park Road with the silos that say like cocoa and sugar, those are not going anywhere. The retail stores are in great shape. So they're going to maintain the majority shareholder and keep their employees, about 250 of them. So it'll stay in Cleveland. I guess they just didn't want to borrow money. So selling off some of your assets to, to get the expansion money is the philosophy. I guess so. I mean, Promise owns parts of several other companies, so this is probably something it does, including Hickory Farms. That's a Toledo-based company that makes gift baskets like wine or meat and cheese boards. So they all make sense with food, I guess. They're not immediately expanding into any other cities. They want to make some improvements at the plant, but we don't know exactly when they say they want to grow where that will be. I think the timing of this news is highly suspicious because it injects Mally's back into your brainwaves <laughs> just at the time you're wondering what to do for your significant other you on get those Valentine's Day. Chocolate dipped strawberries, right? That's what they're really known for around around um, Valentine's Day. Right. They they go out in the parking lot and they have like a tent or something. That uh, they're so popular. Well, there we've done it. We've given them their publicity. Mally's Valentine's Day. Mally's Valentine's Day. That's real. It's not like. <laughs> 
like sweetest day, that bogus October <laughs> Cleveland holiday. It's today in Ohio. That's it for the Friday episode. We hope you have a terrific weekend and come back and join us again on Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. 